0: From the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., welcome to The Kalb Report, a conversation with Katie Korick on democracy in the press. Our series is produced by the George Washington University, the National Press Club, and the Joan Shorenstein Center at Harvard University, in association with the CBS Radio Network. The Kalb Report is underwritten by a grant from the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. And now, Marvin Kalb.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Kalb Report here at the National Press Club, which is now celebrating its 100th birthday. I'm Marvin Kalb, and our subject tonight is Democracy and the Press. Our guest is Katie Couric, the anchor and managing editor of the CBS Evening News, and a correspondent for 60 Minutes. So I'm going to call you Katie and not Miss Couric because everybody else does. That's
2: fine, Marvin.
1: And um, that's right, you can call me Marvin. <laughs> but I think you'll agree that these are momentous times in Iraq and in the United States, and the war is at the top of our national concerns. You are not a war correspondent, but you were in, in Iraq recently doing a full week of what might be called war reporting from Baghdad and Damascus, and I believe it was your first visit to Iraq, right? That's right. I'm curious, now having seen it, having talked to the troops, having listened to the generals, do you think that the American people are being given the straight story, the truth, about what is happening in Iraq?
2: I think the the truth of what is happening in Iraq is incredibly complicated and also incredibly nuanced. And I think it would require reading sort of 24-7 every publication with various points of view to really understand fully the situation in Iraq. And I think at this point in time, four years into the war, that almost everyone who discusses Iraq has an agenda that's fairly entrenched Um, at this juncture. So I think that certainly the media tries as as best as it can to deliver important information about Iraq um, and cover it as well as as it possibly can. Um, So I think that there's a certain amount of Iraq fatigue among the populace, to be honest with you. Um, and I think that, as I said, you really have to read a variety of points of view. You can't necessarily learn everything you need to learn about Iraq from a Pentagon spokesman, clearly, or from a liberal website either. So I think you really, if, if you seek it out, then I think you can get the news and information you need. The question is, are, do people really want to seek it out at this point in time?
1: So what you're really saying is that there is no single truth to be discovered about Iraq.
2: Yeah, I think that's what I found. I, I, I found that, that everyone views what is happening there. First of all, so much of it is theoretical and speculation. Nobody really knows for sure what would happen if U.S. troops withdrew or, you know, in terms of, of uh, what kind of civil war would ensue. And I think a lot of it is, is as I said, theoretical, um, and so I think many people are still fixated on whether the war was right to begin with and how it was executed in the early stages. And I think...
1: Katie, what do you mean by theoretical? Because there is so much that is real and actual
2: I think about in the, what in one the, could see. In the here and now, it is. But I think in terms of speculating and coming up with some kind of game plan in terms of a phased troop withdrawal or or maintaining some kind of U.S. security presence for many years to come, or what will actually happen in terms of will the country implode, will it be worse than it is now, will a strongman dictatorship take over if the United States goes out too soon, will Iran, what role does Iran really have in terms of a power vacuum that might be created? That's what I mean by theoretical. A lot of it is into the future. so Speculate. Yeah, exactly.
1: What are the areas um, that you feel the American people ought to know more about concerning this war?
2: Well, clearly, um, I think the human toll sometimes gets obscured by the ongoing statistics and and kind of the the Iraq news that comes out. I think one thing that I was reminded of uh, when I was there was the enormous patriotism and and uh, the quality of the people serving over there. When I cover... The
1: patriotism of the American Uh, troops.
2: Yes, and and the fact that they really do believe, many of them, not all, very strongly in the mission of trying to help the Iraqi people Mm -hmm. build a better society. Now, whether or not that's doable, there's there's certainly a difference of opinion among the, the servicemen and women with whom I spoke, but... The, the extraordinary sacrifice, I think, was something that I was reminded of in 123-degree heat, walking around Baghdad for several hours while they were wearing a tremendous amount of gear and equipment and bulletproof vests. And, of course, I almost passed out after an hour with a 30-pound vest myself. And I thought, you know, every day they get out there and do this. And, um, you know, at this point, they, we were patrolling Baghdad and there was relative calm. It's certainly in the areas the military showed me uh, with good reason. And, and I think they felt that this new tactic of having joint security stations and being integrated in a neighborhood and, and being a more ubiquitous presence for not only the, the local population and kind of hardwiring them against extremism, was something that was, was valuable, was working, and that they felt really positive about. At least that's what they said.
1: Is there any fault to be placed on anybody, uh, whether it's, it's the generals or the, or the troops or the media or the White House, about the war? Because there's such a deep and growing unhappiness about what's going on. You spoke about fatigue. But it's even more than that. There's a feeling of this whole thing is a mess, and we really shouldn't be there. Do you get any of that in Baghdad?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was a, one US soldier who said, told me he just didn't know whether democracy was possible in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you've heard that from a number of policy experts who feel that it's just not a part of the DNA mm-hmm. in Iraq. And I think the one thing I agreed with, with uh, President Ahmadinejad, that I think he was saying to Charlie Rose last night, was that oftentimes Westerners don't really understand fully the values of this particular culture. And I think the jury is out whether a democracy can, can really thrive in Iraq and if there can be political reconciliation among these various sectarian groups. Um, so, so that this
1: enormous price is being paid on an expectation, on a belief on the possibility of a democracy being built in Iraq when history of Iraq would suggest that it's never happened before.
2: Well, I think also, you know, I mean, I think sometimes I'm frustrated because the fact of the matter is the U.S. invaded and and the country's infrastructure, which was suffering under Saddam, um, was, was, was very much damaged and in some cases obliterated. Sure. And, um, you know, I guess it was Colin Powell who quoted the, the Pottery Barn slogan, you break it, you take it. And the fact of the matter is I think you have to deal with the here and now. And, and I think that's what, what is lacking in the discourse. What is the solution? What are the possible ramifications if the U.S. Withdraw, withdrew precipitously? And uh, I think those are the kinds of things that we should be hearing from our politicians and that right now there's so much emphasis, as I said, on whether or not it was a wise decision in the first place. I think certainly people who covered that fell down on the job in terms of getting the right information and kind of uh, rolled over in terms of U.S. policy and, and really didn't do their due diligence on that in what that do you period think that of time. Was the case? Well, I. Th- talked about this a lot with, with people in the business and thought about it a lot because I remember at the time the buildup was happening, I felt really uncomfortable with the whole atmosphere of the country. I think, you know, sometimes we forget that people in the press are, are made up, in you know, the press is made up of human beings who's, who experience the same oh. raw emotions, believe it or not, not automatons. And looking back on it, of course, everyone, everyone in the United States was reeling from September 11th. And I think there was a lot of fear in our culture. I think on some level we were looking for some kind of patriarchal hero to help us and protect us. And I think we failed to ask really important questions. Um, and, you know, the whole culture of wearing flags on your lapel and saying we when you're referring to the United States, which, and, and you know, the, even the shock and awe in the initial stages It it was just too jubilant and and just a little uncomfortable. And I remember feeling when I was anchoring the Today Show, this inevitable march toward war and kind of feeling like, will anybody put the brakes on this? And is this being properly challenged by the right people? And I think at the time, anyone who questioned the administration was considered unpatriotic. And um, it was a very difficult position to be in. And corporate America, owning a lot of media outlets, there's a lot of pressure. And uh, I remember getting an email from one of my bosses uh, when I had asked a challenging question of Condoleezza Rice. And he sent forwarded an angry email from a woman in Atlanta who was an office manager at a law firm saying I was unnecessarily confrontational and antagonistic. And quite frankly, I thought I was firm but polite. And uh, he forwarded the email to me with no explanation, which I thought was was a fairly insidious way of saying back off to me in terms of questioning the administration. So I wrote him back an email, and I said, uh, I'm just curious why you forwarded this to me. I try to be uh, equally challenging to everyone I, I talk to on the show, and if you have a problem with that... I'd love to discuss it with you personally. And he responded that, well, these usually come in big groups, you know, because obviously when there's a certain agenda that's being pursued, I got inundated with with, uh, emails from James Dobson once when I did the Matthew Shepard story out in Wyoming, the the young gay man who had been viciously murdered. And uh, he said, this one seemed different, but that was the only explanation. So there was, I think, a lot of kind of undercurrents of pressure to not rock the boat too much for a variety of reasons, whether it was corporate considerations. And, you know, at the time, uh, there was not a lot of questioning about the war by anyone.
1: What do you think about now? Do you think that the media is doing its job?
2: Well, I think that's a sweeping question and and requires probably a sweeping generalization, so that's probably not Dlandy. fair <laughs> um, I think that that media outlets are in many cases doing their jobs as I said I think many are the country is so polarized that people see events according to their own agendas and often to their own papers or 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 networks' agenda i don't I think that The major networks are are pretty down the middle, I have to say that. But I, I had to laugh after General Petraeus testified at the two different headlines that I saw on my desk the next day with the New York Post, of course, Rupert Murdoch's paper saying that General Petraeus dazzles Congress and with the New York Times saying he failed to win over any converts. So, you know, I think that, as I said, I guess the best thing you can do, it's very difficult, I think, in this day and age to find pretty down the middle this is what's happening, um, kind, that kind of reporting, um, knowing that you have to make sure it is as balanced as you possibly can, but I think it's harder and harder to find these days. I, I read The Economist because I think they're, they're pretty down the middle on things, but other than but that- But you're not
1: mentioning any news organization in the United States that you consider right down the middle?
2: Well, I would say uh, without the editorial page, possibly the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably that, to me, is the one, the one publication with the least sort of, and maybe time in Newsweek as well.
1: But is it necessarily um, the best kind of journalism to be down the middle if there is something glaringly obvious staring the journalist in the face, that something could be wrong? And then if you just say, stay down the middle, you're allowing what is desperately wrong to continue.
2: No, obviously, I think when there's something glaringly wrong. um, But I think there's also, if if you want to say the war is glaringly wrong at this point in time, I think if if you're covering the news in the present and you're talking about what needs to be done now, what the situation is now, then, then it's important to to observe what's going on, and to ask challenging questions. Certainly, you know, the president needs to talk about the GAO report that showed that the Iraqis had only reached 15 of 18 benchmarks, and the General Jones, Jack Jones, the retired general, mm-hmm. who found the Iraqi police was was in a state of disarray and needed to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and <coughs> officials need to be obviously asked about those things. Um, but Unless you're on cable and you're being a, a very strong advocate for one position or another, I do think there is a, a place for people to, to make observations, to ask challenging questions, but let the viewer make a decision. These? Because I think what right now what people do is they, they watch programs and read publications that reflect their own points of sure. view. Yeah. And, and they don't necessarily seek out other points of view to kind of give them the full picture. No.
0: You're listening to The Kalb Report on the CBS Radio Network. From the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., this is The Kalb Report. Once again, Marvin Kalb.
1: Lately, I've been hearing that the military is again beginning to finger the media as the culprit in this war. And I'm presenting as evidence, but just one very small bit of evidence, the statement by Major General Rick Lynch, who's one of our top people in Iraq, and he said, this war is winnable, his word, if only the media cooperates properly. What's in his mind?
2: Well, I think that is uh, the oldest trick in the book, of course, to blame the media. I mean, that's you know, Marvin, that's yeah, been happening forever. And I think that that's a, that's a sign of probably his desperation. His um, only? Well, probably... Maybe the other members of the military as well feeling desperate. You know, I think that, you know, it's hard to say. I think it's very difficult to get a complete picture of the situation in Iraq for security reasons. Many reporters don't even leave the green zone. And it's not as if you can walk around knocking on doors. We did speak to an Iraqi family while I was there in central Baghdad about sort of what their quality of life was like on a daily basis. And I was told, thankfully, after that interview that that was probably the most dangerous thing we were going to do during, during our stay there. So, um, you know, it, it is very, very difficult to get the full picture, and you talk to as many experts as you can and get as many opinions as you can. But I know in preparation for this trip, I, I talked to many people from different think tanks, and, you know, there's a different point of view from almost everyone with whom you, you speak.
1: So, Is there, is there a... A different vision of the reality of Iraq here among the think tank people as opposed to there in Baghdad?
2: What do you mean? You mean our... What
1: victims? I mean is do the people here have the same vision of the reality of Iraq as the people in Baghdad have?
2: Well, the Well, the, 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 oh, the Iraqis themselves?
1: Or the Americans.
2: Well, I think everybody obviously deals with their own personal experience. You know, there were the seven soldiers who wrote the op-ed yes. in the New York Times, and I talked to General Petraeus about that. And, uh, you know, I think it depends on where you're deployed, what your experiences are. Um, I'm really glad they wrote that piece, and it was tragic that two of them later died in a car accident um, shortly after it was published in the New York Times. Um, but I think I think it really depends on your worldview, your point of view, and your your particular experiences if you're in in theater, as they say.
1: But the, the, you're in effect then sort of rejecting the notion that there could be something in Iraq that is large, glaring, obvious, but what you're saying in effect is that all reporters doing their jobs properly ought to try to balance. Not,
2: it. Well, not necessarily. I mean, I think that we try to record events as they happen. Right. If Fallujah is happening and four contractors are burned to death and dragged to the, through the streets, it's clear to us that, you know, that chaos is ensuing in Fallujah and that the, that the Marines subsequently pull out. Right. I think similarly, if, um, you know, we go to Ambar Province in, in the case of when I was there and we see that there has been some kind of, Coalition formed between tribal leaders and uh, the US military because of their mutual uh, distrust and and hatred, quite frankly, for Al Qaeda, then we talk about that. Now, obviously, I don't take it for face value. There are Sunni tribal leaders there talking about it. Um, And you, I think, as somebody who covered, for me, someone who covered the military, the Pentagon you have to be skeptical about what you're being told and check facts and figures and try to find other sources and other points of view. Um, but is it my job to go over and say, this war is terrible and a withdrawal is, is necessary immediately? I don't necessarily think that is the case.
1: Okay. Um, and, and you may partly be answering the question I am about to ask you. When you were wrapping up your trip, you did a kind of concluding statement uh, of two-and-a-half minutes, as I remember, uh, from Damascus, and what struck me about it is that you offered only one judgment about the war, and you cushioned that, by the way. You said, quote, there are definitely areas where the situation is improving. Fine. But you then asked nine questions, and this is what struck me about the piece. You asked nine questions, nine important questions about Iraq, but you didn't even make an effort to answer them. And so I'm wondering why, if you raise nine important questions, you have been there, you're an anchor every night, you see the material flows into you, surely on some of those nine issues you must have had a strong feeling.
2: You know, maybe you didn't. Just, I, you I know, I don't think this anymore. was was uh, my Walter Cronkite moment to it say this war is bad. Um, you know, I don't think I do have the answers to those questions. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. um, I wish I did. I don't think uh, spending five or six days in Iraq necessarily uh, makes me or qualifies me to answer those nine questions. Mm-hmm. I think they were many of them were forward looking. Um, I mean, you know, I don't really know, Marvin. I wish I did what will happen in terms of Iran uh, if the United States pulls out of Iraq. I don't know the answer to that. I hope... Do you?
1: No. Um,
2: so I don't know many people, quite frankly, who would know the answers to the questions I posed. I but think the my goal was... has
1: said things that suggest that the government does know the answer.
2: I don't think so. I don't think so, necessarily. I mean, I think... That, obviously, uh, the administration still feels that democracy is possible. In um,
1: Iran? Uh, right. In Iraq, I'm sorry, in Iraq. Okay.
2: Yeah. And uh, were you talking
1: about Iran? We were both talking about Iran for a moment. Yeah. Well,
2: I mean, I think that, obviously, there is clear evidence that there has been um, some kind of meddling with, uh, with Iran and with Shiite militias in southern Iraq.
1: Right.
2: Um. But, I I mean, I'd love you to read back the questions, and if you could answer any of them, or if even, um, you know, most experts could, I would be very, very impressed.
1: We'll try. (laughs) We will try. But then, what is your definition of the modern role of an anchor? Um, Is an anchor today to be the person who reads lead-ins and smiles happily and... um, and it's yes. the soul of detached objectivity? Yeah,
2: basically, yeah.
1: That's it. No opinions.
2: Of course not. Um, obviously, I have opinions. Um, but And I think the the goal is to, to try to seek out the truth. Mm-hmm. That, you know, speaking to your earlier contention about sort of being straight down the middle doesn't necessarily mean on one hand they say this, on the other hand they say that, and you all make the ch- decision. Obviously, you want through a... a seeking facts, try to ascertain a certain truth about a certain story. Um, But I think there's a lot of advocacy journalism and commentary out there today. And I don't necessarily feel, unless there is a a, a clear cut factual element to it, that that an anchor person, and it depends, God knows there are a million anchors and a million different media outlets in this day and age, but I have never really saw it as my role unless something is really egregious and without question wrong. Um, and, and for example, when David Duke was on the Today Show, I remember, you know, he denied that he said Jews belong in the ash bin of whatever, of society. Mm-hmm. And I actually, you know, I was very tough on him, to the surprise, I think, of many people, because it was in my early days at the Today Show. And... Uh, uh, you know, I think when, when someone is so clearly uh, wrong uh, that it is an anchor's responsibility, when we covered the bridge collapse in Minneapolis, we talked about crumbling infrastructure and the fact that they had built a hugely expensive stadium in Minneapolis instead of paying attention to bridges and roads, and that's certainly a problem that's, that's a real epidemic in this country. Yes, I feel like then you can speak out and say that pretty much with, with certainty. Um, I think you need to be careful, though, quite frankly, in coming down on certain positions when, when it, it, it's unclear. I mean, I think it's, a, it's accepted far and wide that this, this war was probably, uh, that, that this might not have been on the president's top, on top of his agenda and that people have questioned, you know, what was really behind this. And I think there—that's been very Not well sure documented.
1: I understood that last sentence. What do you, what do you mean by that?
2: Well, that, that that the war might have been a mistake. Hmm. You know, I think that's that's pretty much accepted. Do you have
1: a personal opinion about that?
2: Um, I don't. I've never quite understood why it was so high on on the administration's agenda when terrorism was going on in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and, and that it had no true connection with Al Qaeda. Now, there was, there was talk of that early on, and still many people in this country believe there is a, a connection between Iraq and al-Qaeda. And I think, obviously, um, I think everyone in this room would agree that people in this country were misled in terms of the rationale for war. Um, I think that's clear. you just say clear. that
1: there is a connection? There is
2: not a there connection not, between exactly. Iraq and okay. September 11th.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, ironically, there is now between Iraq yes. and al-Qaeda, which yes. is... Um, Interesting, I guess. But, um, and I think that the, the mistakes that were made disbanding the Iraqi military and leaving 100,000 Sunni men feeling marginalized without, and angry, uh, was questionable. Whether or not there were enough boots on the ground, the feeling that would be, we would be welcomed as liberators and didn't need to focus as much on maintaining security. Yeah. I mean, I think those things are, very, are accepted truths. And I feel totally comfortable saying any of that at some point, you know, if, if, if required on television. But I think everybody is sort of operating from that context. What I try to deal with in covering news is what's happening today, here and now, and how this country is going to be able to deal with it. Okay.
1: Let me pause for a moment to remind our viewers and listeners that this is the Calb Report. I'm Marvin Kalb. We're here at the National Press Club and I'm talking with Katie Kirk. Katie, I'd like to ask you about the so-called new media. Many of the students in this audience get most of the news about the world from the internet. And that poses a huge competitive challenge for the networks, to the networks. Do you think it's possible that in let's say 5 or 10 years down the road that a program such as the CBS Evening News will not be there? because it's too expensive to produce, and there will be too few people watching. Mm. They'll all be on the internet in one way or another. How do you see this meshing of the old and the new media and looking toward the future and not that far out, how would it affect your program?
2: Well, obviously, that's something that that all the networks and many media outlets, cable television too, Mm Um, everyone is dealing wa- with that eventuality, and I think that 's how they view it as an eventuality. Uh, the fact of the matter is that that hopefully content will still matter you know that 's what what old media types say that content is king, and you still need to have programming and credible reporting and accurate information on the internet mm-hmm. you know um, A lot of the information you get is, you know, some guy in his pajamas using a laptop spewing his personal opinion, and not very politely, I might add, on a variety of subjects. So I think that the the real challenge will be, how do you deliver news and information in in an important and accurate way on the Internet? And whether it will be... In in
1: place of what you're doing now or in addition to that? Well,
2: I think that, you know, it, it, it's sort of a generational thing. I see my daughters, they never watch, te- well, they do watch television. They watch The O.C., and they're very excited about Gossip Girl. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, in terms of regular television viewing, news viewing, I don't think they pay a ton of attention to the news right now. They're 16 and 11. They do watch my broadcast occasionally, <laughs> and I give them a pop quiz when I come home for dinner. But um, I, I think that, that there still will be a role. It's just gonna, it's, I think it's anyone's guess, Marvin, what okay. exactly that'll look like in terms of how we'll make the transition to the internet. I think it's a real, it's a real question.
1: It is indeed. I mean, it, it's the big sort of technological media question before us all. When you first arrived at CBS last year, you were on the cover of Newsweek, which I have right here in front of me, and part of the uh, that was the big hype thing that was going on at the time, and the questions that were put on the cover of Newsweek were, will she shine at night, and who will watch? Now, that was obviously a reference to your uh, great success on the Today program. Inside, the magazine seemed to answer its own questions, and it wrote, quote, CBS is hoping Katie will draw new viewers, but the real action in TV news may be happening on the web, unquote. So is the real action on the web? Is, I mean, do you feel the ground kind of being pulled out from under you now?
2: I don't know if it's the ground being pulled out from under me, but I definitely I mean you definitely sense a transition going on in the way media is consumed sure. There's absolutely no question about it and uh, many of my colleagues uh, we talk about it and they they don't watch morning shows as much. they check on their their computers to kind of get a, a early morning Good. fill yeah. to get kind of a, a, a sort of smattering of different different outlets and and then they're on their way. So I would say for all of you aspiring journalists that obviously the internet is the wave of the future, already has become a hugely important uh, asset in the media. And um, you know, I, I sort of knew that when I took this job. You mm-hmm. know, I didn't say, oh good, I'm gonna work on the evening news which has a growing audience. <laughs> I mean, I knew, it was a, I knew it was a dwindling audience. I knew it was an aging audience, quite frankly. And I knew that, um, you know, that, that it would decline in numbers mm-hmm. and that it would not quite have the stature that it once had with, with Tom and Peter and Dan. Uh, at the same time, I thought it was a, a very important genre. Uh, some 27 million people watch it Stadia. every night. The median age is, yes, 60. And many of my, my friends and, and people that I spend time with aren't at home to watch it at 6.30 at night, or in some cases on the West Coast, I think in Seattle, it runs at 5.30. So it's very difficult, I think, and, and I think the way people live, our lifestyles are very different too. That's why morning shows, I think I read recently that people are getting up much earlier, they're going to bed much earlier as well, and they're working longer hours, which you know, I think that our lifestyle also is having a big impact on the way news and information is consumed.
1: You have many friends, many, many friends, who say that the American people are not yet ready for a woman anchor. You've heard that conversation a hundred times. That there's an underlying discomfort um, in many minds about the idea of a woman delivering a very serious newscast. Um, And that they say that that is the reason, the principal reason, why your ratings have dipped. Do you agree with that?
2: No, um, you know, wow, okay. Well, <laughs> I think there probably is, remains in this country, an underlying discomfort with any women in positions of power. I think that, um, that there are some people that don't feel completely comfortable with that. Uh, but I wouldn't say that's the only reason, probably, that I've had certain challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of them what, what, are
1: what are the other reasons i
2: 'm getting to those Marvin. <laughs> some of them are out wanted of to encourage you. <laughs> some of that thank you, I appreciate it. Some of them are out of my control, some of the things that we just talked about in terms of way the way media is consumed in this country lifestyle issues. I think probably um, you know David Gregory, a friend of mine, said it 's almost like you're you got almost two. I, this this sounds kind of weird, but too, you're you became so much almost, almost too well known and too much of a personality to kind of fit into a 22 minute broadcast. Um, I think maybe perhaps on the Today Show, where I felt very very proud of a lot of my work there, and I probably have interviewed more world leaders and public figures than than many of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, I think the fact that the Today Show was a real mix of of segments, and that one minute we might be doing an interview with uh, the vice president or or Joe Biden on on the 9/11 commission, and in the next half hour we might be doing something very very light and different, uh, and 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 at times quite frivolous, but. Um, You know, some of the lighter segments I think were interesting, even some of the medical segments Mm -hmm. and women's health segments that might not be traditionally hard news, I think were really important in many ways. And I tried to bring the same, uh, you know, level of importance and commitment to those segments, not obviously the fashion shows and cooking segments. And, you know, if I did another wedding, I was just going (laughs) to... What ring do you think the bride should pick? Uh, so I felt a little like a, like a game show host on some of those things. But I think that uh, they, po- they probably gave people the impression that I wasn't a serious person because they saw me do the mix of things. And so suddenly when I was put in a format where I could really have, it was very, no personality driven really at all, I think it was a bit of an adjustment for people they were like, what happened to her? You know, she used to be fun and, you know, say funny things. And it was just a very different role for me. And I think it took and is taking people a while to get their, their heads around that.
1: Well, your, your boss, Leslie Moonves, hired you. And he said that he wanted to change the evening news completely. No more, he said, voice of God stuff, going back to my generation. None of that anymore. That, that you were going to try a whole new approach. But that approach didn't work.
2: Well, I think first of all, I think Leslie was his quotes were exaggerated, I think, to be honest with you, said. yeah, I mean, I think he talked about voice of God, I mean, at one point he he made a joke about blowing up c b s news and changing everything, and i think I think what we wanted to do was to make the news more accessible, a little more understandable, a little more casual, less sort of uh less traditional, if we could um, to say. Here's what's going on in Iraq, and if you're confused about this, we're going to explain to you the difference between Sunnis and Shiites, um, or you know, just to try try different things. And I think what we found, quite frankly, was that this is a very traditional audience that really wants a traditional newscast.
1: And that's what you're giving them now.
2: Yeah, I think yeah, I think so. And and Rick and I have talked about it, my executive producer, and. You know, he said, they, he, I wish you would talk to me because we've tried to change the evening news before and it just never works. And um, I think that the conundrum is, are you willing to really make a change and risk alienating your core audience, i.e. people of the average age of 60 who, have, who, who want a traditional newscast for an audience that may not exist at that hour of the day? So I think that was the big conundrum. And I think that... Did
1: you solve that? No. 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 So you've gone back to the traditional newscast now.
2: Yes, we have.
1: And the question that I think flows from that is, uh, given your enthusiasm for the earlier format, are you a happy camper now doing this more traditional role.
2: At times, you know, I get frustrated because I love interacting with people. I like reporting. I really enjoy going to Iraq and talking to, to people, whether it was the Iraqi family or various military officials. And I think i am that's what my where my skills really lie. Um, and I think if I can do pieces like that, um, and I, I also really enjoy the editorial process, talking about how we can do pieces differently. I'd like to stretch the envelope a little more, quite frankly Rick, <laughs> and uh, you know, try some, some new things but I well, think that we we wanted to say, for, for those who didn't think we were, and by the way I didn't think anything we did in the early days necessarily said we're not serious broadcasters we did longer pieces
1: no, we did something format.
2: called free speech Right. Uh, we had probably fewer stories because we had longer stories but I think quite frankly, the, the whole notion that we were so light isn't really borne out in, in, in the, the shows that we no, no, did. And, and not, I would No, 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 no that's okay. No. But, but that's sort of been the conventional wisdom and the party right. line of people who were initially critical. And I thought, you know, to try something like free speech, which was the, the product of a conversation that we had sitting around okay. talking was something that was worthwhile. And you know, we always said at the beginning, we're going to try things, some will work, some won't. But the thing is, if they don't work, then people forget that you said some that, might not exactly, work.
1: Exactly, How long do you see yourself in this anchor role that you're in right now? And I asked the question because I read somewhere, and forgive me, but I don't remember the, the exact location that you may be thinking of giving up the anchor slot next year after the election,
0: going full-time to 60 minutes.
2: That's not true.
0: Not true. Okay. You're listening to The Calb Report on the CBS Radio Network. From the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., this is The Calb Report. Once again, Marvin Kalb.
1: Do you and your esteemed executive producer, Rick Kaplan was sitting right there, do you guys have... Um, Rick is one of the most imaginative people in this business. I admire him immensely. You're a first-class pro. Can you put together a plan that will boost your ratings?
2: Well, we hope that if we continue to to do quality work and to be forward-thinking and to come up with different ways of of doing stories, that obviously we'd like more people to watch. Frankly, I've never been obsessed with ratings. I probably should be more than I am, but at the Today Show, I felt that some of our best years were when we were number two Mm. and we were taking risks and trying things and, and kind of playing with the format.
1: Forgive me, but you know what you sound like now? What? You sound like the politician who says, "I never look at polling data. I never look at." <laughs> well, polling
2: data. It, it's I, it, it happens to have the benefit of being true. true. Um, you know, that's a great I, line. I,
1: uh, that's Henry Kissinger's line.
2: I, uh, uh, you know, clearly, I would like more people to watch. Rick would like more people to watch. But we also feel, you know, every time someone comes <laughs> up to me and says, "You know, I really like you. I admire you." His first question is, "Are you a you Nielsen family?" <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, but having said that, you know, more than 6 million people are watching every night. Yeah, That's you. an extraordinarily high number. And I feel really honored that that many people Absol- are entrusting us to give them their Absolutely. news.
1: I don't have to tell you that you're sitting in Walter Cronkite's chair. Now? Now. <laughs> it's a big responsibility. But you're also sitting in Dan Rather's chair. And Dan was in that chair for 24 years. Now he's suing your boss, CBS, for 70 million bucks. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Claiming that CBS treated him very shabbily, hurt his professional reputation, went after him only because it didn't want to offend the Bush administration. And I'm wondering, as you think about this, what your initial response is? What do you think Dan is up to, and do you think there's some merit in what, he, what he's trying to do?
2: I think Dan had a, a, an extraordinary career. And I think he was a fine journalist and a hardworking person. I always admired and respected him. Um, I was not there when this happened, but of course I followed sure. it. Um, and I think that he made a mistake. And whether, I don't know how, if it was handled completely properly. I, I mean, I think there was were a lot of behind-the-scenes machinations going on during that period of time. Certainly a a panel of people, some of whom I respect a great deal, and the others, I just don't know who they are at this point in time, reviewed it. Um, And I think they did not dot their I's and cross their T's when it came to that story. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, there are very few network executives, I don't know what your experience is, Marvin, that, who deal with Difficult decisions, or making changes, or telling someone that they're no longer needed in a in a civil, um, appropriate, and um, kind way. And all I can tell you is that I was very sad to see Dan Rather's career end this way. And um, I can't really speak of his motives now. Um, and I really don't feel I'm well versed enough to have a, an opinion either way. Okay.
1: Koppel said the other day that um, he felt very sorry for Dan, and it was a very painful process that he was obviously is obviously going through. But Ted said that in his judgment, the story that Dan did about the president receiving favorable treatment and staying out of service in Vietnam by going to the Texas Air National Guard, that that was, I think, Ted's exact words were, more true than not, and that there was obviously a mistake with some of the documentation. But the basic thrust of the story, Dan argues, is still correct. And we've all done stories where a piece of it may not be exactly right, but the thrust of it is. And what is your sense of that?
2: I think that that's probably true. Mm -hmm. But I think that when you're doing a, although I, you know, again, I don't know all the specifics, mm-hmm. but when you're making these kinds of allegations, you have to be completely, you have to back them up completely
1: Super careful with,
2: with information. And I think that there was some sloppy work done mm-hmm. and there's, you know, sloppy work is sloppy work. Now, whether that somehow obscures the actual story, it doesn't really matter because our job is to, to get it right. And I think there were things in there that were, were were quite egregious in terms of how it was reported. What was egregious? Well, I think I, again, you're asking me to kind of relive no, this whole chapter. But I think one. you know, in terms of the person who was analyzing the font, again, I can't really get into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, was was not a reliable individual, and in that that came through during the investigation. But again, I don't really feel comfortable kind of rehashing this whole thing.
1: Let me move you on to a far more comfortable subject. Do you feel that that we may be approaching that time when large corporations are increasingly anxious not to offend the government, particularly, and this takes you back to what you were saying about 30 minutes ago, Mm -hmm. particularly when you're in a wartime situation, where nerves are very on edge. And you wonder right now whether these corporations don't want to lose government contracts. And they do own many, many media. And as a matter of fact, all over the world today, the story of the last 20 years is that more and more of the media end up in the hands of fewer and fewer corporations. So do you sense a danger that these large corporations are gonna begin to eat in on your own editorial freedom?
2: I think that, first of all, I think that 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 existed several years ago. This is not necessarily a new phenomenon.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And I think that there is, what I mentioned earlier, sort of um, insidious pressure or sort of um, an undercurrent of pressure. I still believe there is a lot of journalistic independence, even given the corporate ownership, in some cases. Of media outlets, I think there are other cases where you have to toe the party line uh, of, of a certain corporation, but I think that most of my colleagues feel that they have complete freedom. i think you know again, during the build up to the war there was there was some sort of I, I felt kind of a subtle pressure um, and and I remember one network executive um, gave a thumbs up when when uh, Bush won Florida during the election coverage, which I thought was really grossly inappropriate. Um, but, but I think that for the most part, uh, there is a lot of journalistic independence still. I
1: totally agree, totally agree. We're on the same, on the same page there. <laughs> However, uh, <laughs> yes. do you sometimes worry that you as an anchor are too busy, that you're doing too many things, that you are giving responsibility to staff people to write things, and you got into trouble once on a plagiarism thing when one of the writers picked up some stuff from the Wall Street Journal and didn't credit it. Do you feel, I mean, for example, rather at the time of the story that we were talking about, argues, and probably accurately, that he was overwhelmed with preparation for the conventions and the election and a a storm in Florida and all of that stuff. An anchor can do the evening news without doing everything else. And as you have examined over the last year, do you find yourself being crowded, being asked to do too many things, running a risk that you may not be in control of what goes out on the air under Katie Couric's name?
2: Yeah, I think there's, there's, there's always the risk of that. Certainly, um, it's something that I pay attention to. When I'm working on a 60-minutes piece and I'm traveling, perhaps doing an interview and coming back uh, to do the evening news, and I haven't been as plugged in as yep. I might otherwise be, that's something for me to consider. Um, I think that, obviously, I trust Rick implicitly. We talk a lot during the course of a day, but it's something I'm, I'm mindful of and careful of and uh you're right it it was a problem several months ago when uh, you know we were i was doing notebooks and we were talking about different topics and and uh we had probably three or four people in the meetings kind of com- brainstorming and coming up with things and i wrote some and other people wrote some and then i would edit them and uh you know i think in in those cases you're right ultimately I'm responsible and I think that it's an Im- imperative that you have experienced ethical people who you can trust in some of those roles but um,
1: But doesn't it, doesn't it make more sense <laughs> Maybe it doesn't make more sense for you because it's your face out there it's your responsibility your your reputation right why entrust it to somebody else why not write your own copy
2: Well the I heck do with the other I do a lot of times but You know, there are only so many minutes in a day, and some of these notebooks require a great deal of research. You're not just sort of saying for 54 seconds, this is what I think about X, Y, and Z. It requires calling certain experts, getting certain material. You tell us what you think. Yeah, no, 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 I know, but we talk about it, and I I give them their marching orders, and we say, I'd like to do a story on the MacArthur Genius Grants, and how impressive these people are, and how they need to get more attention and I'll even you give them some lines and a lot of times I do write them myself but you know I might say I need you to call uh, Richard Haas at the Council on Foreign Relations if you get a chance because I may be running across to do 60 minutes so you're right you know it's something that you okay. have to be exceedingly careful about
1: We've only got a couple of minutes left and I want to ask you a couple of questions that students asked me to ask you and one of them is how does one succeed in this business and I have to tell you the great story about Dan Shore, who was sitting right, right there. Dan, right <laughs> there. When Dan went from newspapering to CBS, he asked somebody, oh, what is the secret of success? How do you succeed here? And the somebody said, sincerity, if you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> Putting that aside, and everybody should forget that story, what then was your secret of success?
2: I think that I really love what I do. I I like the nuts and bolts of what goes into what I do. I love to write. I like to talk to people. I'm naturally curious. And I think because of that, it's a a really good fit for me to have done this for a living. And uh, I think that I always tell people they have to do what they're passionate about. And they also have to take a good, hard look at their own unique skills or the skills they lack and be realistic about that when they're figuring out what they're going to do.
1: Another question that I'm asked to ask you is, how do you put up with all of the pressure that you're under every single day?
2: Well, I think part of it is because I have a really healthy foundation, thanks to my parents. Um, I have a very healthy sense of who I am. And um, and believe it or not, still a lot of self-confidence in my abilities. Um, and my work is exceedingly important to me, but not as important as my children and my family. And uh, it's one important part of my life. But I think I just have a very healthy perspective. And I'm, I'm a very grounded person for whatever reason, for probably because of my parents.
1: Certainly important, too. Do you, do you have enough time to read a book that has nothing to do with politics in Iraq? Yeah. Like what?
2: I'm reading Eat, Pray, Love right now, like everyone else in America. <laughs> and I'm, I'm finally into India because I got sick of Italy and, uh, and all the food. It just made me hungry every time I read that. And uh, so that's what I'm reading right now.
1: Do you have private time, much of it? Yeah,
2: you I do. do. Mm-hmm. Like Even on the with weekends? the schedule. Yeah. Well, I, I, I enjoy my weekends. I try to do new fun things. You
1: get things. out of New York?
2: Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. You go to the movies? I do. I go to the movies. I uh, went to Becoming Jane with my daughter Ellie, who's read a lot of Jane Austen novels, and uh, yeah, I make I, I really make time to enjoy my life. That's really important to me. I think having a husband who died at 42 and a sister who died at 54, I realize the importance of finding joy sort of on a daily basis.
1: Katie, I am really sorry I have to interrupt this conversation because I have a feeling we could go on for a lot longer, but it's the tyranny of the clock once again. But I want you to look around. There are hundreds of students in this room, and I think they join me in saying thank you, Katie Couric, for coming here, sharing some time with us, and talking to us. I'm Marvin Kalb. Good night and good luck.
0: The Calb Report is directed by Robert Vitarelli. The producers are Heather Date and Tina Creek. Our executive producer is Michael Friedman. Our series is produced by the George Washington University, the National Press Club, and the Joan Shorenstein Center at Harvard University. The Calb Report is underwritten by a grant from the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. For more information about the Calb Report, please visit calb.gwu.edu or call 202 9948810 This forum was presented before a live audience at the National Press Club in Washington D.C. The Calb report is produced in association with the CBS Radio Network.